Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Charles Post. Charles is an academically trained ecologist with a gift for communicating complex and sometimes emotionally charged issues in a thoughtful manner to diverse audiences. Whether he's discussing the intricacies of ranch management, the ecological implications of ethical hunting, or controversies surrounding the BLM's Wild Mustang program, Charles has honed his ability to thoroughly consider all sides of the issue, then educate the public in a style that's positive, comprehensive, and intellectually honest. His academic credentials, combined with his photography, writing, filmmaking, and popular social media channels, have made Charles a rising star in the world of conservation. Born and raised in Northern California, Charles has enjoyed a deep connection with Western landscapes for as long as he can remember. He grew up hunting, fishing, and exploring the seascapes and mountain ranges of the West Coast, then earned both a bachelor's and a master's in ecology from UC Berkeley. After considering pursuing a PhD followed by a career in academia, Charles changed course and pursued a more untraditional track that melded his two passions of science and storytelling. Since then, he's settled in Bozeman, Montana, where he works on an amazingly wide range of projects that all tie back to conservation and stewardship in the American West. Charles and I talked for well over an hour and could have easily continued for several more. We discussed his recent work for Filson covering ranch lands, which is a progressive, forward-thinking ranching operation in southern Colorado. We also chat about the ecological importance of ranching for western landscapes and the progress that Charles has made trying to change some of the unfounded negative impressions of ranching and livestock. We talk about his recent elk hunt and how that adventure was one of the richest, most meaningful experiences of his life. Charles talks fondly about his relationship with Ben Masters, who helped him break into the filmmaking world. It also turns out that Charles and I have a shared love of the American Dipper, which is a bird, in case you didn't know that, and we nerd out on that subject for a few minutes. As usual, we discuss favorite books, films, and the best advice he's ever received. If you're a longtime listener, I know you're going to absolutely love this episode. And if you're new to the podcast, you'll love it too. Be sure to check out Charles on Instagram at charles underscore post and check out the episode notes for everything we discuss. Hope you enjoy. Yeah, so I'm 29 and, you know, it's been really funny just kind of speaking of Ben Masters and speaking of you know, kind of moving down this path. It was not that long ago that I was in graduate school and kind of at this intersection of of kind of life. And I had academia, which was pulling me in one way. And then I had people like Ben who were, you know, were these inspiring kind of peers that I didn't know, but I really looked up to. And I ended up finishing graduate school at UC Berkeley with a master's degree and, you know, was really excited about exploring this opportunity to do things like Ben was doing, like telling films, you know, rooted to these conservation and stewardship stories. And um, I watched Unbranded and and told myself, you know, one day I'd work with him. And out of the blue, maybe a month later, I don't know where he got my number, but he calls me up and he's like, hey, man, I'm not sure if I know of another person who would like to go sit in the desert for two weeks and <laughs> film animals and just kind of like be off the grid, 
you know, like sitting on a watering hole. It was a story for Nat Geo and Wild Horses. And yeah. like, so I don't know if that's enticing at all, but would you want to come out and do that? And I was like, uh, <laughs> absolutely. How did so, he, how had he found you? I actually, to this day, don't know. I, it might've been f- through social media. It might've been through like a reference. Um, I, I don't really remember if we had conversed at all this over, you know, the social media or texting, but that was definitely the first time we'd ever talked mm-hmm. and we had never met. I mean, I landed in Salt Lake city. He bought me a flight, hopped in his truck and we kind of just headed off into the desert to, to do this, uh, this piece that came to life as an eight part series on Nat Geo about the wild horse issue. Um, but yeah, we just hit it off and, you know, immediately I was like, okay, well, these are the people I want to surround myself with. And these are the type of stories that I want to pursue. So it, that was a really nice kind of, uh, kickstart into this world that i have waded into so yeah definitely and it you know it seems like well you do do a ton of stuff you know you're a a writer photographer a filmmaker a trained ecologist when you meet somebody for the first time and they just making small talk and they say what do you do how do you answer that oh man i mean you know i think i've kind of toiled with that question a bit in the last three four years since graduate school and i've I've toiled with it because I guess part of it's been I haven't known exactly what I want to do. You know, where does Charles want to be in 10 years? And I haven't been able to quite put my finger on that answer. So I've described myself as a storyteller, a creative, um, you know, filmmaker, photographer, writer, all those kind of adjectives. But recently, like honestly, in the last month or two, I've really just – realize that what I am is an ecologist mm-hmm. and that's what defines me and that defines the way I see the world, that defines the work I do, that defines the lens through which I tell stories. Um, so ecology and, ecolo- and an ecologist in particular, I think are the words, is the word that describes me the best. Um, and just, yeah, because that influences everything I do. Every, every part of my life professionally is you know, bound to that background in ecology. So was there a, an ecologist first and foremost? Yeah. Was there a specific event in the last few months that made you kind of shift your, your thinking on that and zone in on the ecologist aspect? Yeah, I think so. I think there's been quite a, quite a few things, you know, it's been a lot of, in the last 12 months of, I've taken on a lot of projects that required, I wear quite a few different hats. You know, I art directed a campaign, art directed and produced a campaign for Filson, uh, it was their fall campaign on my friend's uh, ranching operation. It's called Ranchlands. Uh, you would have seen it on their website, social media catalog. Yep. And that was my first time really taking an idea and a story to a a brand, and then working with them to to turn that into a catalog of film films, photo stories, written stories. So there was the art director kind of aspect. You know, I've a film that I've been working on for the last year with two friends, Max Slow and Forrest Woodward called Sky Migrations. Um, I was co-director on that. That just was a finalist at Banff that premiered there a few weeks back is now on the world tour. Um, so I've done filmmaking I've shot some stuff. I've written some stuff. So yeah, I have all these kind of, I've had all these kind of experiences that have questioned, you know, forced me to really question like what do I want to be, how do I identify myself? And in the last few months, now that a lot of those, projects are kind of done or close to done. I've had the opportunity to really reflect and think about, you know, where do I want to be in 10 years? What hat do I want to publicly kind of uh, wear? And I just think ecologist is kind of the most true 
uh, hat for me. It's the most true kind of adjective. Uh, so I think that's the one I'm going to kind of run with for the time being. Yeah. I, well, I think that's, um, I think that's a good niche to fill because, you know, the reality is most scientists, they speak scientist language and they write academic papers. And while that's great for building knowledge in the universities that can be passed on, I think you're reaching a much broader audience and you're boiling it down into a language that people like me who I'm, you know, I'm very interested in it. And then people who may not have any interest, but then they can understand it because you're explaining it in such a, a great way. And then it brings them in. So I think it's a, a perfect use of all your, your skills and passion for whatever that's worth. <laughs> well, um, no, I appreciate that. I mean, that's the feedback that I get from peers and, and people I respect and admire and, and just people, you know, in the community on social media really helps me kind of tailor my voice and, and kind of modify it and grow and learn. And, and, uh, you know, I, when people ask me how I, how I develop the skill sets that I have, I, I, I always give thanks to those scientists that speak science because my most of my days start with reading science papers. You know, I'm, I'm a member of the Ecological Society of America. I get peer-reviewed journals in the mail. You know, I'm reading the New York Times science section, uh, you know, a bunch of different resources. And really, I, I rely so heavily on those kids I went to grad school with and my professors and other people in that field. So I look at myself as a, as a communicator of science, kind of like a Michael Pollan you know, might be considered a sure. of science. Um, so, yeah. Well, you mentioned your ranch lands um, project, and you've got so many, and I want to I want to try to talk about all of them. But the ranch land one is of specific interest to me, and probably a lot of people that listen to this because it revolves around the ranching world. And right. you know, the the ranching world, I think, can be seen as somewhat controversial in certain circles. I used to, I lived in Boulder for seven years, and the you know a lot of people in Boulder they're highly educated and they're smart and they're passionate but a lot of them are very misinformed about ranching and the role that livestock can play in you know preventing or, or helping with um, you know environmental change and so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about ranch lands and your work with them and how, maybe how you got introduced to them and from an ecologist standpoint how it, the work they're doing is very important. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I think ranching like hunting are two kind of realms and, and areas of interest that oftentimes are portrayed and I think are really unfair light. I, I think one of the things that whenever I start talking about ranching or hunting, I always remind people that those ranching and hunting, like anything, like politics, like the weather, like the quality of a person's you know ethic or moral fabric, it, it exists on a spectrum of best and could be better. Mm -hmm. And the media and storytelling are so often drawn to these negative headlines and so often drawn to these examples that, you know, they probably hope will inspire distaste, you know, or disgust or whatever. And what I always, you know, how I kind of introduce those conversations is by pointing out, yes, there are ranchers and hunters and people in general who could benefit from, you know, some good mentorship or, or just being a little bit more thoughtful in the way they do things. But uh, along that same, you know, line of thinking, there are countless ranchers and hunters who do their job with the utmost respect for the animal, for the landscape, for the ecosystem in which they're a part of, for, you know, they have such a deep reverence for the livestock and the soil or the elk and the deer, you know. And I think that one of the things that I really try to do with my work and something I'm really deeply passionate about 
is telling those stories of the best practices Mm -hmm. and with an intention to, you know, not only celebrate those that deserve positive uh, recognition, but also to provide a, a kind of contrasting narrative, you know, for the people in Boulder and the people in the Bay Area and, and the 98% of the American public does not ranch, you know, mm-hmm. we're, it, it's probably more than that. It's probably over 98% at this point. Uh, yep. You know, ranching is is changing for a lot of reasons. Um, and, and one of them is probably because people don't understand what ranching really means in the best cases. So Ranchlands reached out to me years ago, uh, invited me out to one of their ranches they manage uh, called Zapata Ranch, which is owned by the Nature Conservancy, which says a lot. Mm-hmm. It's a, um, I believe it's a 105,000 acre ranch uh, in the San Luis Valley. So just just uh, west of the Sangre de Cristos and yep. just basically adjacent to Great San Diego's National Park. It's a, it's a f- incredible uh, landscape, super diverse, tons of elk, bison they run cattle they have horses um just a really kind of thriving ecosystem that they've kind of positioned themselves in as stewards and i went there and quickly realized that their approach was very much in line with the approaches i'd I'd learned about as an undergraduate and a graduate student you know i studied rangeland ecology um pretty heavily that was like a big part of my degree in ecology Mm -hmm. Um, california has a lot of rangeland so that's a natural thing for UC Berkeley to emphasize when they, you know, teach us, uh, teach their students about ecology. So I was pretty familiar with some of the theories and, and applications. And I saw what they did and met the people and met the Phillips family who own Ranchlands. It's a fourth generation ranching family. And just was quickly, you know, drawn to their reverence and drawn to their perspective. Mm-hmm. And their perspective really was bound to this idea that to be a successful rancher, you have to live in harmony with the landscape, but also have a diversified, you know, business. You know, it's beef is not their only uh, kind of their only um, source of income. Mm-hmm. They have wildlife workshops. They have artist work, you know, retreats and workshops. They have people coming out for just as a kind of a, a ranch experience. They run cattle. They also manage 2,500 head of bison that the Nature Conservancy owns. And this is a conservation herd. So they're there to kind of take the place that they would have historically on the landscape, providing disturbance and and cycling nutrients and just being a a species, you know, a really integral species in this ecosystem. So they, you know, what they, what Duke Phillips Sr., who's one of my mentors and and a great friend, he describes Ranchlands as a company that has the place's value in conservation like most ranchers place value in beef and cattle. Mm-hmm. So they have this kind of, I think it's, it's, a, it's a bit of a unique approach in this, this very holistic, complex portfolio of, um, yeah, of, of values and also um, ways that they, that they work with the land. Um, so just learning more about the bison and the cattle, you know, they run beef masters, they employ the Lasseter philosophy of, of cattle raising, which is a, a really cool kind of hands-off approach um, to running and raising cattle. And, um, you know, rapid rotation, just kind of like the bison would have done, you know, pre-man. Yep. Um, so they, mi- they mimic that kind of natural grazing regime. And yeah, it's just really cool. I mean, they value topsoil and perennial grasses and blue quail and pronghorn and elk just as much as their beef master herd. Um, and that, 
and that really inspired me. So it's been about four years I've been working with them, helping tell their story through outside magazine articles, through this Ranchlands campaign. Um, and, you know, I have a workshop that my fiance, who's an artist, and I are leading this spring. It's going to be a five-day ecology and art workshop um, out at the Chico Basin Ranch, which is their home ranch yep. uh, just south of Colorado Springs. So, yeah, it's the, you know, they've, they've opened their doors. They've, you know, I feel like I'm part of the family. And it's just been really fun to celebrate that, that best example in my eyes. Um, so. Yeah, it's a, it's a great um, a great operation. I was down there recently and got to see it in person. I didn't get to meet Duke though, but we have a mutual friend and a guy named Jim Howell, who you may have heard of. And Jim was one of the co-founders of the Savory Institute. And actually oh, yeah. I interviewed him on this podcast um, early on, but he's a, he's a good friend and we've, he's, he's a neat guy. You know, he's a rancher, but he's also an ultra runner and he's an author and just really is un- understands and kind of leads the way in the holistic grazing. And he told me one time I asked him, you know, when he's explaining this to people who maybe think that livestock are bad and he explains the, the concept to him, has he ever gotten any pushback? Because I, you know, the more I read about it, the more I understand it, there's, there's really no room for interpretation. It's, it's the best thing for the grasses and for the, uh, for the environment. And he said, if people will let me talk and listen, I've never had anybody, disagree with me they all say yeah i get it and i was wondering if you've had the same experience talking with people in academics or in northern california or just people who weren't familiar with it until you brought it up absolutely i mean i think that that unfortunately there has not been a lot of effective storytelling around those best cases of stockmanship and those best cases of range management you know you see the cowspiracy films and these other films that kind of are drawn to those those uh negative examples, mm-hmm. which exist in any realm of society or realm of economy or politics or business, or whatever it is, there's always like a bad apple. But, you know, one of the things that Duke Sr. and Duke Jr. have taught me and and kind of reinforced from the things I learned when I was a student at UC Berkeley is that it's so so much of a cow's impact or a bison for that matter impact on the landscape is a, is a byproduct of stockmanship, is a byproduct of a grazing plan, is a byproduct of, of approaching that animal, that grazer as a tool, right? So yep. it just depends on what your desired outcome is. And if your desired outcome is to reintroduce grazers to an ecosystem that provide not only ecosystem service, but in some cases, protein and, and food for a lot of people, sustainable food, then it can be a win-win, but the animal and the stockmanship has to be tailored to those goals. So I think that's one of the things. I mean, you can teach. I was just actually um, talking with Duke about how animals coexist with predators, and and you can teach a, a herd to react to a wolf or a coyote just like bison would have by grazing and and defending themselves in a tight ball, keeping the young on the inside. And kind of working as a unit, and that's a function of stockmanship. Mm-hmm. So, I think that's one of the big things that people who are not familiar with ranching they think of a cow as this kind of ubiquitous animal that just is out on the landscape doing its thing. But what people I hope take away from this conversation and others like it is that a cow in one pasture is totally different from a cow in the other pasture or other ranch, and simply because of the way that it's managed by the stockmen that, that run that place. So. Yeah. Yeah. I think 
in talking with Jim and seeing some of his operations, I'm actually working with him on um, selling two of his big ranches up in Montana that he's been grazing under holistic model for the last five, six, seven years. And it's unbelievable if you look at the stock rates when he bought the place and they had just been tra- grazed traditionally. And then now the stock rates are better. And also just the ecosystem is better. There are more birds, there are willows in these little coolies where there used not to be willows. The whole place is just so much more healthy in only five or six years. It's unbelievable right. how that, how that works. And it's, it's pretty amazing to, to watch. And, um, I know that you're a, a, a nerd when it comes to this stuff like I am. Are there any books that have meant a lot to you related to holistic range management or grazing? Because um, I know Jim's book, For the Love of Land, was one of the ones that really changed my perspective on this. So I'm sure you've read a ton of books. Are there any that come to mind that people listening should check out? Well, that's a, that's a great book. Um, I'd also say just looking up the Lassiter philosophy of grazing. You know, mm-hmm. that's a really interesting um, approach. I think it's one that uh, definitely shapes the way ranchland approaches rangeland management. Um, there's also a really great video on it's on just on YouTube, and it's uh, I think if you searched on YouTube just wolves, Yellowstone, and river, just those three keywords, mm-hmm. this video would come up, and it's it's a really cool piece that looks at the effects of reintroducing wolves into Yellowstone, and the reason why I, I mention this is because it's a it's one of the more succinct. It's about you know less than ten minutes. Really concise, but it really shows how ecosystems are interconnected and how grazers can affect a landscape. And, and, and basically the gist of it is that they introduced wolves in Yellowstone. And before that time, when, when wolves were not as present, elk and other grazers lived in a, in a world free of fear, right? There weren't very many predators that would really push them around the landscape and affect their their behavior, their foraging behavior. Yep. So if you're an elk and you're and you're not really too worried about wolves, you're going to probably go down to the riparian corridors. You're going to hit all the fresh uh, vegetation. You're going to, you know, hammer the banks because you can just be as close to water as you want all the time. Um, you're going to be sitting there eating the forbs and, and other kind of uh, nutritious uh, flora that, that abounds. And in time, you're going to reduce the amount of woody debris that falls into the river and creates habitat for trout and and digs out deep pools which provide a thermal refuge for trout during the summer you know deep cooler water provides some heterogeneity which is good for aquatic insects you're going to affect that riparian corridor which is a nursery for for birds um it's a it's a great source of, of habitat for for insects, terrestrial insects, butterflies, other things. Uh, the the floral composition is going to be impacted. The bank's going to be eroded, which will impact the whole ecosystem. And and they brought back wolves. And in a short matter of time, you could see that entire riparian corridor heal, hmm. just because those wolves changed the way those animals grazed. And that goes back to ranching, like probably one of the things that changed your friend's ranch for the better was having a hand in how and when and for what duration animals access riparian corridors, mm-hmm. you know? And if you give those ecosystems an inch, they'll take a mile, you know? And oftentimes it's just allowing those animals to mimic that historic grazing regime. Bison would have hammered a place for you know, a short period of time and moved on and maybe not returned for over a year. Yep. So you have these kind of intense disturbance events that are 
kind of hugged by time to to rebound and to kind of uh, reestablish their their uh, the soil and reestablish that vegetative community. So that's so much of it. And I think that 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 film. Uh, that little YouTube video does a really great job of telling that story. Yeah, well, I'll definitely check that out, and I'll put links to it on the webpage so everybody else can just click through. But um, I've not seen that, so that sounds interesting. Um, it's a really cool piece, yeah. Before we keep going on your projects, which I definitely want to do, I want some background on you personally. Where did you grow up? I grew up in Marin County, California, so just uh, a bit north of San Francisco, a little town um, kind of at the base of this mountain called Mount Tamalpais. It's a... Really, it was a really special place to grow up because we were surrounded by natural spaces. Yep. Um, you have Point Reyes National Seashore, which is right there. Um, you have Mount Tamalpais State Park. You're not too far from the Sierra. You know, while it's in that greater Bay Area, it's actually a, a, an area that is rich with outdoor, um, you know, space and just some really kind of interesting ecosystems. Um my childhood home had a creek in the backyard that had salmon in it. You know, nice. I spent most of my free time from as early as I could walk fishing and hunting with my dad and brother uh, in the backyard. We had a big veggie garden, uh, hiking in the hills, hiking in the mountains, um, up in the creeks and the lakes. So just really kind of immersed in that sense. My dad was a member, a board member of California Trout. So I grew up with that kind of conservation-minded uh, parenting. And, um, you know, my middle name is Gifford. Gifford Pinchot is named after my fourth great-grandfather. Yeah, I read about that. I, th- I thought that was so cool because I noticed that was your, your middle name, and I wondered if there was a connection, and then I, I saw that. What was, the, what was the connection between the families there? My four great-grandfather's back, this guy named Elihu Gifford, he was a Hudson River Valley uh, local, owned a tannery, um, came from an old uh, old line of, uh, you know, of folks who, who kind of settled the Hudson River Valley of, of New York. And he was a big conservationist and had a, a son named, Sam, named Sanford Robinson Gifford, who was a Hudson River Valley painter, along with, you know, uh, church and coal and, and kind of some of those those painters in the transcendental movement that really were the first people to paint the West before we had postcards and, and before we had a lot of um, effective ways to kind of share these these, vision, these visions and, and these landscapes with people on the East Coast, um, painters went out there and were commissioned in some cases to paint the West. And they came back and this transcendental movement, this um, Hudson School of Art kind of were the first painters to show the impacts of settlement and of pioneering on the West. So one of the things that um, Stanford Robinson Gifford did, as did others, but they would do these things that depicted the subtle hand of man. So they'd paint a really beautiful landscape and then they would include one cow or they'd include a little cabin or they'd include a few stumps. And it was this kind of subtle hand of, of progress and they were some of the first people that came back to our eastern seaboard cities like New York and really advocated for the mindful uh, settlement, if you will, of the West. And, and basically they were there saying, hey, like this is – these places are not immune to our collective swing, swing of the axe and we should really be prudent in the way that we manage and kind of quote-unquote conquer these places. 
So um, Gifford Pinchot's dad was really close with Elihu Gifford, my relative, and um, Gifford Pinchot's dad named Gifford Pinchot, his son, after Elihu, and also because Sanford, Elihu's son, the painter, had really inspired Gifford Pinchot's dad, and they actually had his paintings throughout their house. So Gifford Pinchot grew up looking at my relative's paintings and... Um, some would think that those paintings inspired him uh, at a young age and and helped p- perhaps propel him down the path that he chose to pursue, you know, being the first chief of the Forest Service and really transforming the way that we manage forests and, and public lands in America. So that's that's kind of the the elevator relationship between myself and and Gifford Pinchot, who's definitely a hero. So yeah, he's uh, he's an interesting dude. That's a cool connection. Uh, I'm sure you've read The Big Burn. Have you read that? I haven't. No. Oh, it's really good. And there's, it's, there's a lot about him and his personality. And, okay. uh, one of the, the, the best parts in there is I remember when, uh, when TR invited him, invited him in for the job interview, they had a wrestling match. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I do not doubt it. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm reading wilderness warrior right now. Which oh, is that's a good TRs. one. Yeah. And it's just, it's an incredible book. It's one of my favorites. Uh, so it's been really fun. Yeah, reading that book now, and I think, uh, yeah, it's just been a big source of inspiration to, uh, for a lot of reasons, you know. And one of them is that I think hunters, like ranchers, oftentimes are kind of binned up with these really poor examples of hunting and these negative ex- these negative stories around hunting. Yep. Um, and I think it's important to, like with ranching, to talk about the reality that, yes, we have people who really could be better at promoting hunting and and more mindful in the way they do that. But there's also an incredible amount of people doing really reverent, really mindful storytelling around hunting and approach that pastime with um, with a lot of respect and and ecologically minded reverence for these landscapes. And, and the Boone and Crockett Club is different today than it was back then, but regardless of how people think about it, we can't deny the fact that men like TR at, you know, and the Boone and Crockett Club really gave wildlife in North America a chance. Mm-hmm. And you know, whether it's elk or bison or Yellowstone National Park, I mean, those places are very much a byproduct of some of these early visionaries who were hunters and who founded the Boone and Crockett Club and established the norm for managing public land, you know. Yeah, I really so, think if it weren't for those that group of people at that specific time, you know, there would be no more bison and a, a lot of the other big mammals would be either be completely diminished or um I mean very much diminished or completely diminished. That that's a, I love that time period. You know, maybe like 1880 to to World War 1. I, I think those are that's one of the most interesting time periods in the US. Absolutely. And I mean, I I know that Hunting, like ranching or politics, are very complex, dynamic subsets of our culture. But I think one of the best things we can do is create space to celebrate those best cases, those best examples. And thinking back to the TRs and you know his intention to save bison from extinction is something that I think has a place in today's conversation about hunting. And you know, if we can, I mean, what a world would we live in if if every hunter had that that reverence and that, that sense of, um, stewardship that, that guided some of those, the fathers of conservation. You know, I think it's, 
it's fun to remind people of that and to explore those best ways to uh, to propagate conservation through being a sportsman and through being somebody who works on the land. Yeah, and speaking of that, um, we were introduced through Tyler Sharp, who is running the show at Modern Huntsman. Um, and so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that publication and, and your role in it. We Tyler and I covered it in detail, but for people who, who may not have heard that episode, can you just talk a little bit about that? Because it's, I feel like that publication and that website really are um, focusing focusing in on the, the mindful side of hunting. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's been a incredible journey. I'm so proud of, uh, of Brad and Tyler and everybody on the Modern Huntsman team for, for, uh, realizing this dream and, and raising the money to, to make this, this book come to life and this brand come to life. And, uh, so my formal role is, is as co-editor of, of the, of the journal, uh, Chris Douglas, who's another photographer, hunter, amazing, amazing human who lives out in Paradise Valley, not too far from here. Um, he and I are, are teaming up to co-edit that first, that first issue and hopefully future issues. Um, and what our role will be besides contributing content and stories of our own will be to uphold that vision working alongside, alongside Tyler and, and the other Modern Huntsman folks is to really uphold that vision of telling those best stories, of telling stories that are really bound and rooted in stewardship that exemplify that that reverence and that mindful approach. So we'll be working with our contributors to, you know, help them shape or tailor stories or to help kind of pick stories, but to really just be that final chisel that shapes this book into something that that speaks to the mission and the core of, of modern huntsman, which is, yeah, to, which is to create a space for those best examples and those, those, uh, those stories, which will hopefully kind of push the needle, uh, in the hunting world and, and in just in the outdoor world towards, um, towards stewardship and towards conservation, because these places that we love, whether it's to hike or to fish or to hunt are, are there because society allowed them too valuable to be swept aside. Mm-hmm. And we need to continue that because, you know, our world's changing. We've never had more people on this planet. There's new pressures and um, forces, you know, threatening the systems and, and, and places we love. So uh, it's, a, it's a good time to, to get our voice out there and uh, start creating a, a, a groundswell that will hopefully, uh, you know, inspire uh, a new generation of stewardship. Yeah, I think that's very well said. I'm very excited for the the first issue to come out and it's such an all-star team and everybody's so passionate and smart and hardworking. It's going to be it's going to be great to to see the the final product, the first of many final products, I guess. Um one question I, I had that I think you'd be a great person to ask is uh, you know, we're in this stage in politics now where there's a lot of um worry about public lands and the future of public lands and I think everybody for the most part it's a bipartisan issue that that people love public lands and they love recreating and you can get hunters and you can get birders on the same page agreeing that public lands are important for the U.S. Um, but then there's also the private land component and that's what I work in and I you know I broker the sale of ranches and then I do um, private land conservation work with land trusts and I feel like w- sometimes the the private land aspect is is forgotten about or left out of the conversation um and it's and so i was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
the role that you see private land playing in the overall health of an ecosystem? Because, you know, generally in these Western valleys, you know, the bottom of the valley is private, the mountains are are public. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about your thoughts on just the interplay between public and private land? Absolutely. I mean, I think a great a great place to start is talking about Texas, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you got 95% of the state's private. Um, there has been some of the most formative conservation uh, efforts, you know, those have, many of those have come from Texas and from the King Ranch in West Texas. You know, a lot of the white-tailed deer that were reintroduced to the Southeast came from the King Ranch. Um, you know, where Ben Masters, Adam Foss, and I are about to go and make a film about desert bighorn sheep in the Elephant Mountain um, complex, which is in West Texas near Alpine. We'll be relocating uh, about 100 sheep down to um, some mountains near Big Bend and the Rio and, and you know, in Mexico right there. And and the conservation and, and land management success stories in Texas are very much a byproduct of that private-public intersection. So I think that is one place where we can start the conversation by just, you know, pointing out the fact that that private and public part, uh, you know, partnerships can be some of the most successful ones out there. Mm-hmm. And I think that one of the things that the public should keep in mind is that private landowners, just like we're talking about with ranching and hunting, exist on a spectrum, right, of somebody who could be more stewardship-minded and more reverent of the ecosystem. And, you know, another another side of the spectrum is, is those – those private landowners who are leading the charge in the conservation movement and really leading by example. Mm-hmm. And, you know, out here in Montana where I've, you know, where I've lived for the last year, um, I've gotten to be friends with quite a few people who are pretty invested in the ranching world and that private land world. And there are countless examples of ranchers, private landowners who are doing incredible work. I mean, think about some of the the ranches that don't allow hunting and provide that refuge for elk during the season, you know, or who create wildlife habitat just because it's something they're passionate about. And in and and in that same kind of line of thinking, there are are you know plenty of of ranchers who provide access points and are part of the block management system where they allow hunters and fishermen the opportunity to move through their land to access public land. So I think it's hard to talk about public land or private land or the benefits or cons of both mm-hmm. on, on with like these kind of sweeping general statements. I think that, you know, every state has a different kind of landscape, if you will. Yep. I think people talk about, you know, the BLM and the wild horse issue out in the West. And after spending a lot of time out there with Ben Masters, it's it's evident that there are complexes and places that the federal government does not have the bandwidth nor the resources to manage well, in my opinion. Yep. And, you know, without knowing the families on the ground, I would still venture to say that there's got to be ranchers out there in Nevada and in Utah and some of these states that are you know, filled with a lot of BLM land that are doing incredible work, mm-hmm. work that the federal government wouldn't be prepared to do their, on their own 
due to limited resources and limited bandwidth and the fact that it's, in a lot of cases, not their backyard. You know, the second we start taking people away from a backyard, we start losing those voices that could really be vital in the protection of these kind of like forgotten and out of the way corners of the world. Um, so I think it's I think it's unfortunate that some of these these conversations just get kind of uh, plugged as as ubiquitous, you know, like public versus private, private versus public. But really, I think what we should do instead is try to find some of these examples of private landowners that do incredible work. You know, the Phillips family, they lease land from the state of Colorado at their home ranch and they're, they're tremendous stewards. They Mm -hmm. do some of the best work out there. And yes, it's technically public land, but it's a private enterprise, a private business, a private family that's really uh, stewarding that landscape into the future. So, um, you know, just back to telling those stories that should inspire us in positive ways instead of, I think, you know, pitting private against public or public public against private. Yeah, and I, th- I think you're exactly right. You keep mentioning the spectrum, and I think that's what everybody needs to remember is that this is all extremely complex, and it can't be boiled down to one you know news story on the on the internet. I mean, this is you could you could study your entire career trying to understand just a, f- a few of these issues, and I think that's where your work is so important is that. You take these extremely complex issues that are heated on both sides and present them in a way that that um, strikes a chord with everybody, I think, or, or with, with most people. So, again, I, yeah, I appreciate I, what you're I, doing. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's something that I want to say was introduced to me as a, as a student, as a scientist, because when you present a science paper, you have to – be objective and you have to keep in mind that you know and somebody when when scientists say that they know something or there's significance in their data we use what's called the 95% confidence interval mm-hmm. so that's saying that we are based on our mathematics and our statistic statistic analysis we are 95% confident in our statement that leaves 5% of that um, as an unknown yep. as an, as a potential for there to be an outlier or something that doesn't quite fit the mold. And I think that same mindset is so important to employing storytelling because there's always going to be an exception, you know, and there's always going to be somebody who doesn't quite fit the mold, whether that's a hunter who happens, to, you know, like be the president of an organic farm, which would maybe catch some people by surprise. <laughs> or, I mean, you know, there's like, there is, there are those outliers. Yeah, I sure. just think that that instead of again like painting these big broad pictures, it's so important to like pick those tactful stories that celebrate places of common ground and inspire positive reactions as opposed to these stories that just probably have some intention to piss people off and like pluck on their heartstrings and instill some sense of uh I don't know, some negative response, yeah. which I don't think makes much progress. For Definitely anybody. not. And, you know, I think a lot of times these news organizations, um, especially online, they're they're just putting whatever will get people to click so they can sell more advertising. <laughs> it's right, it's yeah. not really the story. It's just how can we get people to click? And unfortunately, um, I don't know, outrage uh, gets people to click. So it's um, – it, and all right, so speaking of that, you are very active on social media and you do such a great job – and you 
you know, you have, you post these beautiful photos with really long captions, either about ecology or about conservation or hunting or ranching. And it's almost like a little mini lesson from your, you know, your academic days in teaching the people on Instagram about all these things that you're so passionate about. And it's, it's interesting because it's such a contrast from what most of social media is, you know, most of social media is quick, like, don't like, um, you know, scroll through fast and yours requires people to pause and, and take a break and, and really think about it. And so can you talk a little bit about your, how you, uh, your relationship with social media and, and how you use it to, to kind of get the word out about the things that you think are important. Absolutely. Yeah, no, and I know. I thank you so much for saying those, giving me that feedback. I mean, it's great to hear something like yourself feeling that way about the work that I put out there in social media. And, you know, the way that I think about Instagram in particular is that it's, it's really a tool and it's a tool in a toolbox. And, it's a tool that I started really thinking more closely about as a graduate student. And it really became a nice complement to my work when I was at UC Berkeley teaching undergraduates in field biology because we would have these lessons that we would that had been developed by the department and we would uh, you know teach them and go over them in detail with our students who are mostly freshmen. Um, freshman level undergraduates. And it was a really fun opportunity to take some of those more salient points and some of those more exciting elements from those workshops and lessons and share them with my followers through social media. So I started really thinking about like, how do I communicate some of these complex issues that might require an hour of, of a lecture or a field trip? And how, how would I distill that down to a paragraph or two? So it's been this really fun kind of, yeah, this opportunity, this outlet for me to think about some of these bigger themes in ecology, think about some of these bigger themes in conservation and stewardship and explore my voice and explore ways to communicate them in in a fashion that's intriguing to, you know, um, all walks of life. You know, the, I have a pretty diverse following and um, it's been a definitely a, a learning experience. I think my my voice has changed, my approach has changed and continues to do so as I refine my approach and learn more about the world and and kind of just practice and and uh, get feedback and um and it's been really fun because you know social media is a great way not only to tell stories, it's also a great way to meet other people in our world and to build relationships and you know, with some of the commercial work I do, it's a great way to connect with brands or companies, uh, folks who might see the work I do as fitting for their storytelling or their brand kind of approach. Um, but yeah, you know, I think the long-winded kind of responses that I tend to write, uh, it's been something that I've thought a lot about. Uh, there's so much content out there that's, you know, kind of clickbait, pretty short, pretty shallow. Yep. Um, and a lot of it's, you know, paired with beautiful imagery and, uh, a lot of it's paired with um, emotion and, and kind of some of these more personal perspectives. But, you know, my goal in life is to, as Ben says, you know, Ben Masters has this great line, which is, you know, preach the gospel of conservation. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much singularly what I care about on a professional level. Um, 
And that's what I've chosen to dedicate my Instagram feed to, you know, mostly, is to find exciting ways to pair beautiful imagery and motion with a, you know, a, a, a body of text that hopefully leaves my audience inspired, I mean, maybe a bit more informed. Um, if anything, I hope it creates a, a forum for conversation. You know, it's been really fun sharing photos of of hunting and of ranching and of things that, you know, that people would be probably, uh, that a lot of people would assume would inspire some, um, you know, some negative feedback or some heated debate in a negative way. But, you know, it's been so, so exciting to put that content out there and to have pretty much nothing but positive conversation and healthy conversation. Yeah. Um, you know, and people just asking questions or, or posing ideas or, you know, kind of bouncing off one another. And I think that's great, right? We need to create a space for people to feel included in some of these, some of these you know, uh, complicated topics. And, and again, also remind people that, you know, uh, they can come to my feed and, and, and it's a good place to learn. I think it's a pretty well-balanced perspective. I, I usually will include references or other places for folks to learn more so um but yeah definitely like a it's an ever-changing tool like I'm, I'm learning how to do it better and learning how to yeah just be more effective in my communication so yeah you, you do a great job on it and it's just it's really neat to me that in the in the midst of the the chaos of social media you know there's this little corner that you've created where you can go and really get some, some in-depth substantive, uh, you know, discussion about issues that, that I care about. So good work oh, on that. It means a lot. Yeah. yeah. Well, and, no, and, man, keep it up. Well, I got to say, you know, not to like shamelessly plug, you know, my, my supporters, but when I was in graduate school and I finished my, my degree, I got my master's and walked out of UC Berkeley after being with that institution for almost 10 years, I was in a pretty interesting place. You know, I needed to make a living. I wanted to be freelance. I wanted to be a storyteller and make films and, and kind of follow my, my dreams. But you have to make money, you know. And I, <laughs> yeah. I shoveled horse poop. I cleaned tack at a ranch. I tutored. I wrote for a local paper. I fished a little bit. I gave work. I led workshop. I mean, I kind of did anything that I could to make some money mm-hmm. and kind of make this this reality a dream and it just so happened that about a year into that uh, mountain hardware and outdoor brand and keen they make uh you know footwear they took me on as a as a uh, an ambassador and and support me and financially and and they they are a huge reason why i'm able to do this you know like the social media content that i make a lot of it's made possible by their support Mm -hmm. and you know my latest film sky migrations which is on you know the banff world tour that was a film that was funded by mountain hardware and it's been really fun to to be able to do what i love and create that content that ends up some of it ends up on my social media feed and i can't thank those guys enough for you know having the uh, ability to take me on and, and really support my dreams so definitely a team effort yeah, well, I think that's important that you you know recognize them like that. I don't think it's a, a plug at all. I mean, I think those companies that are putting their money where their mouth is on things like that, especially a a company like Mountain Hardware. I mean, they're 
at least they're, I think they're owned by Columbia, right? Which is a, which is a publicly traded company. And the fact, you know, you just don't see many publicly traded companies putting their money where their mouth is really on, on things like this. And I think the fact that they're supporting you to do this work and spread the word, it says a ton about, about them as a organization. And it says a ton about you that they would be willing to invest that money, um, into, you know, what you've created. So I think it's, I, I think it's great. Um, and they make good gear too. I've worn their gear on some pretty big mountains and have yet to lose any uh, any limbs to frostbite. So. <laughs> they do. They make they make good gear. I, you know, it's uh, I I love and I, I, they make great gear and I love the people. I mean, I really do. It feels like a family. There's a uh, you know the head of marketing at Hardware is a guy named Dennis Randall who comes from National Geographic, and I'll never forget sitting down with him. And you know, we had this vision before I was a formal ambassador to. You know, you know, for him to help me create these types of stories and content to push the needle in the outdoor industry, you know, from a place that's really almost singularly focused on athletic prowess mm-hmm. um, into a into a place where you know maybe we celebrate that because it's very deserving, but also maybe we celebrate people who get outside to inspire conservation and to really affect policy and the way that people engage with the outdoors. Um, and, you know, Keen's right there, you know, with them in, yes. that, in that kind of intention. So it's been really fun because I think there's a lot of really positive change taking place in the outdoor industry, you know, kind of shining a light on stewardship and the need for for that industry uh, to really, you know, team up and, and help save our playgrounds and save these places that we recreate and escape to. And And also, you know, one of the things my dream in life is to create partnerships between a Sitka and a Mountain Hardware. Yeah, you know, yeah. Two brands that rely on the same thing: public land access and wilderness. You know, thriving ecosystems. Like both companies, both demographics, love and need the same thing. So my dream is to find partnerships and bridges to connect those two worlds. Because an elk hunter and a mountain climber, a mountaineer, you know, they both are at the same trailhead. Oh yeah, and they both need the same high quality gear. And and I think. You know, one of the positive things that has come out of a lot of this political chaos we're dealing with now is it's it really has brought together groups in the outdoor industry that used to be at odds. You know, it's it brought together right. hunters and hunters and mountaineers or um, people that, that used not to get along, but they all realize how much that they have a lot more in common than they have different. Um, and so I think it's uh, like any kind of chaotic time. There's a lot of opportunity. And I think you're you're in a good spot. Um one question I had about learning, you know, you say you're, you're always learning, you wake up in the morning and you read academic journals and then your, your Instagram captions have, have changed over time as you've you know learned new things. Um, is there something, this is kind of a random question, but is there something you've learned say in the last year or recent memory, last 18 months that is a drastic change from what you thought you knew? Have you had a a really drastic change of opinion on something um, that that was a surprise to you. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. You know, oh, that's a great question. Let me think about that. You know, I think um, I think one of the the biggest things that has really changed my life has probably been hunting. Mm-hmm. I would say. I grew up hunting. I hunted until I was about 16, then stopped, not necessarily consciously, but just because I was in school and, you know, starting this career as an ecologist and didn't really have the time or, or that, 
that kind of pathway for me to, to combine hunting with what I was defining myself as, as an ecologist and kind of the things that, that kind of tugged at me intellectually and on like a ethical and moral level. And hunting was one of those things that scared me from a storytelling perspective because there's such, it's such a charged topic. Yep. And one of the things that, and one of the people that really gave me the courage and helped me cultivate the courage to really explore hunting was Ben Masters. Mm-hmm. He has taken on the crazy task of speaking on behalf of wildlife on the Wild Horse and Burrow, um, you know, in that forum. He's a he's the a, the citizen chair. Oh yeah, for the BLM. And that, I mean, the number of just insane remarks. It's crazy. It's completely crazy. It's it's insane. So I look at him and I, that inspires me to take on these hard topics because there's such an opportunity to, to inspire change for the better and, and really stand up for what you know is right. Like he's doing and has done for such a long time. So I got back into hunting when I was in graduate school, after teaching a field biology course with uh, a colleague of mine, he's a guy named Chris Dow. He's a forester up in Northern California, super smart, one of the smartest guys I've ever worked with, avid duck hunter, avid deer hunter. Uh, and we started going. And one of the things that really changed me was thinking about hunting as an opportunity to shape a landscape for the better. And in the case of hunting with Chris, I thought a lot about waterfowl and I did some research and talked to my advisors and professors and realized and learned that snow geese populations have been just growing in an exponential fashion. And this booming snow goose population that flies from places like Mississippi up the corn belt of Ohio and into the Arctic above Hudson Bay has inspired the growth of a population that is out of balance. There are far too many snow geese than the ecosystem of the Arctic can support. So you can go on the internet, and I would love if you would, because it's a really (laughs) cool topic, and go and read about the effects of snow goose populations on the very fragile Arctic ecosystem, on Arctic fox, on other waterfowl, on caribou, on this really delicate ecosystem. And you'll find and you'll see recommendations made by scientists, made by uh, echoed by New York Times reporters, um, recommendations made by fish and game biologists, that hunting snow geese is one of the only things that we can think of of how we might curb this population growth, which is literally destroying parts of the Arctic. So armed with that kind of understanding, I went out and hunted waterfowl with Chris Mm -hmm. and felt really good about it. You know, not only putting food on the table, but but understanding how my actions were really shaping ecosystems. Um, And I took that same kind of approach to this film Ben Masters and I made called Crosshair Conservation. We made it in partnership with Mossy Oak. And it's all about the effects of hunting white-tailed deer in landscapes devoid of apex predators that shape them and shape their populations. You know, wolves and, and, and bears and, and mountain lions, in many cases, really have no effect on white-tailed deer populations in much of the southeast. Mm-hmm. 
And as hunt, there's never been more white-tailed deer north in in North America ever. Yep. And white white white-tailed deer hunters have an amazing opportunity to help manage and shape those populations. So I think one of the things that to answer your question that that I've that this changed me in, in in a way that I have changed as a storyteller and as just a growing person is is to think about how hunting can be this positive tool and to have the courage to put it out there and that if if I put it out there with the mindfulness and that kind of well-rounded approach by providing scientific references and really coming from it from an ecology perspective, not a trophy perspective, or in some cases even a food on the table perspective, but simply a here's how hunting can shape a landscape for the better, the response has been fantastic. And like I was talking about earlier, you know, that fear that I had early on has been replaced by inspiration and positive reinforcement to continue exploring these these topics. So um and that was surprising to me, you know. I was the number of times that I made posts that maybe could have been a little bit more eloquent or delicate or mindful, you know, and, and I got chewed out by people. <laughs> do I agree with them? No. Do I think that it's uh, that Instagram's a forum to like, you know, say what some people say? No, but I do in retrospect appreciate their negative banter because it made me think a little bit harder about how to do how to tell those stories in a, in a better, more effective way. Yeah. I think that's, I love having my mind changed on things. You know, it's not, it's not really, um, it's a little painful when it's happening. You know, if you think you have something figured out, (laughs) but it's, um, I think it's very important just as a human to, to be kind of evolving. Um, totally. Man, we've already been talking for almost an hour, and I feel like it's only been about five minutes. But I, <laughs> I don't want to take away just... uh, your whole day. So I've got some quick questions that I've been asking everybody I have on the podcast at the, yeah. at the end, and it's been really fun to compare the answers. And so I'd love to run them by you if you have the time. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, first one, What do you have any favorite books related to the American West? This is a hard question, but any books maybe that are, have been especially meaningful to you or books that you give as gifts to others, just the, a few books that pop to mind that you think anybody who lives here in the West should read. Yeah. I mean, you know, from a, just a his, a history nerd perspective, I think undaunted courage by Stephen Ambrose. Yeah. That's just a great story. It's crazy to me that they haven't made a PBS special or a feature film on that. Mm-hmm. I still think that's probably one of the best sagas of American history. Um, Wilderness Warrior, like I was talking about earlier, that book is incredible. It is. If you weren't, if you didn't have a deep reverence for conservation and, and some of the people who really shaped that landscape, um, you know that book will really push you over the edge. It's it's just really well written. Um, really exciting book so much information in there it's just unbelievably dense i mean it's maybe 700 pages or something but it's every page is just dense i need to read it again because i'm sure i only absorbed you know 15 percent of it right yeah no and i'm (laughs) it's my fiance rachel always kind of gives me grief because i've been reading it so slowly but i swear it's because there's just so much you have to man there's no and the print's small (laughs) yeah exactly there's a lot in there um so that's a that's a just fantastic book you know, the other book, which is my North Star and Bible in a, in a lot of respects, is Aldo Leopold's Sand County Almanac. Mm-hmm. And that book, while it's based in kind of uh, the Midwest, you know, um, Sand County area, it is just such an amazing example of natural history and of, of ecological storytelling and, and stewardship on such a deep level. 
so that's a book I, I have, uh, you know, downloaded on my phone. I listen to it whenever I'm on long flights. I'm holding it right now. Book. Yeah, it's. I it's just took it off my shelf. If I could have one book forever, that would be it. I mean, that is my favorite book. Um, that's a good one. I think Desert Solitaire by Edward Abbey is a great book. It's a great kind of reflection on stewardship as well. Yep. Rooted in Utah. You know, if 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 you're if you love Abbey, obviously Monkey Monkey Ranch Gang's a little, little bit more radical, but uh, I think it it addresses some pretty interesting ideas and themes, you know, in terms of stewardship and conservation. Um there's gosh, one yeah, um, that I don't know if you've read this. It's called All the Wild That Remains. Have you read that? I have not. No. You, you'd love it. It's a okay. double biography of Edward Abbey and Wallace Stegner. And okay. kind of laid, of yeah, laid on top of um, the, the author. It kind of does a road trip through the West. And so he's talking about issues, modern day issues with the West, and then going back to those guys and, and how they kind of relate to what's going on today. But it's. If you love biographies and you love the West, um, it's it's a great book. It's just and everything by that author. His name's David Gessner. He's a okay. nature writer, but he it's all just just really good and and pretty funny too, which I appreciate. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, humor is huge. Yeah, uh, definitely. <laughs> I guess I guess I'd end it with you know, there's a book called The Great Animal Orchestra by Bernie Krause. It's about the ecology of sound. Oh, cool. And I've never heard of that. It will blow your mind. Really? It is it it changed my it literally changed the way I walk around in the woods. It changed the way I see the world. It's uh he's got a really good TED talk as well. You can look up Bernie Krause. Um, cool. But yeah, that that'd probably be my my final literary suggestion the <laughs> you know this um my, my wife probably does not like all these book recommendations i get but amazon loves me now whenever i talk to somebody like <laughs> <Yeah>. you <laughs> yeah. and you have prime so it's free yeah man much. it's free it shows up two days <laughs> it's awesome um yeah yeah I, so i'll be interested to hear this this answer um you're obviously a, a filmmaker are there any um documentaries that have been very important to you that you love that have inspired your work I'm, i know there have been yeah I you know one film that that came out um, called Elk River is a really interesting piece about the elk wildlife corridors uh, out of the Yellowstone National Park. Really, really strong storytelling. Um, just a great example of private and public en- uh, entities coming together for a common cause. Mm-hmm. Um, so some really incredible Nat Geo folks worked on that. Um, that's a great film. Uh, another one is is called Island Earth. It's a film that I was really the first film I worked on after graduate school, uh, directed by Cyrus Sutton, Emmy Award winner, one of my best friends, uh, incredible mentor. That's all about uh, GMOs and kind of the social and ecological effects of that industry. Yep. And I, I point that one out because GMOs, like hunting and ranching, is a really complex topic. Yeah, it is. There's a lot of players. There's a lot of um, drivers propagating that industry and a lot of effects. And I think that film did a really good job of delving into the, the inherent complexities of genetically modified crops. So mm-hmm. that's, that's a great film. It's on iTunes. Um, really proud to have been a part of it, but um, yeah, those two films I'm trying to think what other ones, you know, there's another one called the Sonic sea, which just came out um, NRDC natural Re- resources defense council mm-hmm. kind of w- was behind it. It's all about, noise pollution in the ocean oh wow and kind of how noise pollution is has affected and is continuing continuing to affect our marine ecosystems um yeah oh another one chasing coral 
It's all about how ocean acidification and, and the rise in marine temperatures is, is having just a, a tremendous effect on the health of our, our world's coral reefs. I think I saw Ben Masters uh, promoting that or saying that it was one of the best documentaries he'd seen in a while. So I, I had that it's, on my radar. Yeah, James Balog did Chasing Ice, which was kind of the prequel. Oh yeah, yeah, to yeah. That film. So yeah, I know a guy who worked just... on that up in uh, uh, with him uh, in Boulder, a friend okay. of mine from Boulder. That's cool. I didn't realize that. Okay, yeah, and nice. th- th- those films are just they do such a good job. Yeah, of addressing these complex issues and presenting all the sides and doing it in a really beautiful way. So those are great. Yeah, I didn't. I'm, I'd only heard of one of them, so that's exactly why I ask. Um, awesome, awesome. If this is a funny one. If, is there some activity you enjoy that would be surprising to listeners? So you hunt, you do adventures, you're an ecologist. Is there anything weird or funny that you do? <laughs> uh, yeah, there's got to be. What do I do? I spend a lot of time in bookstores. <laughs> me too. <laughs> uh, I always walk around with my hands clasped behind my back. Do you really? Makes fun of me about. Yeah, because they, they say I look like an old librarian, <laughs> but that's just, I don't know. Uh <laughs> What else do I do? I I, use, I usually keep a list of birds that I see from my house. Oh. I've done that for a lot of the houses I've lived at. So just you keep note of what you see. It has to be it has to be observed from like the front porch or from the window. Um, so my my last house I had like sixty five species, and my current one, not that many. How many species have you seen? My last house in California, I was like north of 60, which is huge. Uh, then again, I lived in Point Reyes, which is, you know, has some of the highest diversity of birds on the planet. Yep. Um, so that was really unique. Um, we just moved in a new place in Bozeman. So that's kind of a TBD work in progress. Have you that's added up every life. species you've ever seen in your whole life? I haven't. You know, I'm not really a birder in that sense. I, I kind of fell in love with birds because I studied the American Dipper, Man, which is this you, really... You reminded me. I, I meant to ask you about that. I, I, I want to hear about yeah. the American Dipper. I love the American Dipper. Yeah, it's just such a cool bird. I spent a, a long time working on it as a graduate student. Um, you know, it's a flying trout, basically. Mm-hmm. It's a it's an indicator of ecosystem health. If you see a dipper, you can, you can infer that the system is healthy. If you don't and it should be there, there's something wrong. Um, so it's, that's a really cool kind of, uh, effect of, of knowing what a dipper looks like. Um, so yeah, I, I watch birds, which is kind of weird, I guess, for some people. Um, trying to think what else. Most nights before bed, we watch PBS nature shows. (laughs) (laughs) That's I would expect that though. I mean, that's, that's, you should be, you know? (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, last night, you know, if you follow us on Instagram, Rachel and I were watching a, a show on otters, which is really cool. Um, and she decided that my spirit animal is a sea otter, which I don't argue with. I like um, sea otters. Yeah. <laughs> they're pretty cool. Uh, they're super cool. I did yeah, a semester of uh, with the National Outdoor Leadership School during college um, up in okay. the Pacific Northwest. And we were on the coast yeah. for a while uh, hiking and, and uh, on the Olympic Peninsula. And I, I saw sea otters everywhere and I loved them. And that was also my first experience with American Dipper. And no uh, way. yeah, I was, we, we had this like an afternoon where we had to go off and do like a little solo time and it was raining. And I, I sat down next to this tree next to a Creek and I was just sitting there in the rain and I couldn't sit still like any, you know, 21 year old, but I, and I was about to go crazy just sitting there and I looked at the Creek and I saw this little bird they kept jumping and diving in the water and going underwater and holding his breath and coming up. And I sat there for four hours watching that bird. 
And I couldn't believe it. And then I I went out and I researched it, and this was 99, you know, before the internet. And it was an American (laughs) Dipper. And I was just, ever since then, I've just been obsessed with them. So when I saw that. They're so cool. The the Dipper's on your, uh, on your, uh, on your webpage, right? Yeah, it's on my webpage. It's on my email kind of signature. Uh, it's should be on my business card. I hired an, an illustrator to draw me up a, a, a few um, a few dippers. So that's a something I need to check off my list. All right. uh, but we, yeah, I love that bird. Yeah, it's, it's pretty it means cool. So much to me. John Muir loved the bird. You know, singer of the mountain streams. It's a yeah. It's a really really cool cool uh, organism. Um, yeah, so I'm trying to think what other weird things I do. I'm not very good at dancing, and, and we're getting married next September, so my fiance is signing us up for dance classes. So I, <laughs> probably in the near future, I'll be like embarrassing on the dance floor in front of a lot of people. And the fian- your and, fiance uh, might be a better person to ask that question because I know my wife would uh, have a really long list of all the weird stuff. I oh do. <laughs> yeah, she would have she would have so many funny things to say. Um, um, all right, yeah, one more, uh, a few more of these. What is the most powerful experience you've ever had in the outdoors? And that could be scary, funny, memorable. Just uh, is there one single experience that you think back on and think, wow, that was that was about as, as good as it gets? Yeah, the two most incredible experiences I've had outside. One would be going up to Alaska for the first time a few years ago. Yep. And watching the salmon migration. Wow. It's something that I'd heard stories about. California used to have epic migrations of salmon, which are mostly now, you know, gone, which is horrible. But it still exists in Alaska. And the whole idea of walking across a river on the backs of salmon is so true. So I think getting up to the Kenai Peninsula um, and watching millions of sockeye and pink salmon and chum salmon just literally pouring out of the river. Like so many fish, they're like flopping on the bank. Wow. And they're five fish deep in the middle of the I mean, just incredible. And watching that progression of fish and that, that march of fish upstream just kind of changed me in a lot of ways. Because um, I grew up I grew up with a creek in my backyard that doesn't have salmon in it anymore. And sure. And that happened in my lifetime. Um and then, yeah, probably the most impactful experience I've had recently was harvesting my first elk mm-hmm. um, with a bow on public land. I, you know, let the arrow fly at 12 yards. It changed my life. We hunted hard for over two weeks on a piece of land that's not <laughs> – that, you know, you, people – put so much attention on, you know, the national monuments, the national parks, uh, some of these kind of epic landscapes. But my favorite place on earth right now is a little piece of state land that from a map doesn't look like anything special. But if they, if that piece of land was in jeopardy, I'd, I'd go full on to save it. I mean, it is just, <laughs> cool. it's, it just changed me. It changed the way I think about land. It changed the way I think about elk the amount of reverence I have for those animals and that the, the animal is able to harvest the, you know, just that whole engagement was just so transformative. And not only did it put 260 pounds of meat in my freezer, which I can share with friends and family and tell them about that animal and tell them about that day when he fought all day on the side of the hill and just got, you know, worked and the, you know, where he slept in the snow, where he slept on the hot days, where he fed in the morning, you know, the trail he took into the woods, like the relationship with that animal and that experience just, 
I think, uh, enriched me in so many ways. Probably a lot of ways I haven't really tapped into yet. But yeah, so I think that opportunity, uh, you know, Adam Foss gave me a bow last yep. spring. First Very bow, cool. never shot one before. I spent the whole spring and, and summer practicing. And then um, Adam and another friend, uh, a friend named Harrison, who works over at Sitka, took me out. And yeah, we hunted the slippies of public land and just had uh, quite the experience. So that's great, yeah, man! Congrats! That was a beautiful, uh, beautiful elk. You sent me that picture, and um, definitely yeah. a beautiful animal. That's awesome, man! Oh my gosh! Yeah, no, it's uh, so yeah. <laughs> Those would probably be the two, but I'm sure there'll be many more. Cool. Um, yeah. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Oh gosh! And it could what be related to, to work or from your family. You know, so your dad could have told you. Just is there one piece that sticks out? Yeah, the t- the two that stick out are one that my dad used to tell me. He he was born in in, in International Falls, Minnesota, so up in the North Woods. His dad was a Harvard trained forester uh, and hunter, and you know, really kind of seasoned outdoor guy. And the the saying that I think he learned from his dad uh, was, "Be a duck and let the water beat off your back." <laughs> And I think that's kind of – he always used to tell me that when I'd get, like, frustrated and yeah. pissed off, you know? Uh-huh. And I think it's a great thing because it, it's so valuable to have the perspective when you're in one of those uncomfortable, heated moments to just take a breath. I agree. Just slow down and really just think about it and realize that in most cases, it's just a bead of water and it's best just rolling off your back. It's not anything worth getting all fired up about. Um, so that's been a really nice, I think, kind of reminder just to slow down, keeping the perspective, you know, keep your eyes on the prize, whether, you know, it was me trying to finish grad school or, you know, some of these really, uh, kind of exceptional endeavors that all shape us in many ways. I think that's a great kind of, uh, bit of advice to think about. Another one, uh, Gary Snyder, you know, poet laureate, mm-hmm. a really kind of brilliant guy. He came to Berkeley and, and, and spoke and I had a conversation with him after, after the, um, symposium and we were talking about owls <laughs> and after our conversation, he looked up at me and he just said, be well and do good work. And that I, that's kind of been a memento, I think. You know, be well means a lot because it's a reminder to be happy mm-hmm. and to do what you love. And there's, I think, we are often kind of caught between a rock and a hard place with our jobs and kind of how we fill our days. And it's just really important to remember how how valuable it is to do something that you love, and in turn, that'll make you well and happy. And and doing good work, I think, really translates to being fulfilled by the things you do. Mm-hmm. So while a job might offer a little bit more money or might, um, you know, push you in one direction, I think it's so important to take on projects that really fulfill you and are good and will inspire positive change. And those, yeah, that's, that's, that sentiment he shared with me, I think has been a, been a really important one. And then the last one is, Slow is smooth and smooth is fast, you know, and that's mm-hmm. something a lot of horse trainers talk about, you know, when you're working with stock. And, sure. And I think that's that's something that Rachel always tells me because I can rush and be hasty. She's really good at slowing down. So she always, you know, I have that written on the inside of my baseball cap. Slow is nice. smooth is fast. <laughs> so that's another good one. Yeah, those are those are great. Um, 
the the way I usually end these these interviews is I, I ask people if they have any any uh, request of the listeners of this podcast. So the people that listen to this podcast, they just love the American West in one way or the other, whether it's, and they show that love through their athletics, through their work in conservation or ranching or hunting or, you know, a, a wide variety. But is there anything you would, you would ask these people? Yeah, I would think about how can you, with your platform and resources and community, propagate stewardship? You know, we all people who listen to this podcast, we all love the outdoors. We all love open space. We all probably love the sound of, you know, an elk bugle or, you know, cool, fresh, clean water, you know, whatever it is, you know, how can we make a daily practice of propagating stewardship? Because we need that more than ever. We need more conversations, more forums, more mentors, more uh, sources of inspiration for people because fewer and fewer people are are having are you know are are having that access you know it's you know we're turning into this technological world and i think we owe it to the next generation to hopefully you know inspire inspire the stewards that will that will take your ranch or take your mountain or forest you know into the future and 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 you know ensure that elk are still there and grouse are still in the, in the, you know, in the trees and, uh, and that you have these wild places to, to escape to. So that's what I would say. Yeah. Well said. I agree with it all. Um, so how can people connect with you online? Yeah. So you can check me out on my website. It's just charlespost.com. Um, you can get in touch with me there. Uh, also on social media, um, it's at Charles underscore post. Um, so that's another good way to see what I'm up to. Um, and be on the yeah, lookout for your, your new film coming out. Yeah. Be on the lookout for sky migrations. You can check out the Banff, uh, world tour schedule. It's, it's all over the world, all over the country. The tour started last week. So that's playing, keeping out for, um, our Mossy Oak film, which should be out in the next few weeks. Um, and then, yep, Ben Masters, Adam Foss, and I are going to be shooting that film on Desert Bighorn Sheep down in West Texas, and, and that'll be something to keep your eyes out for on the wild film tour that, that Ben's heading up, which has just been an incredible success. So if you're in Texas, um, you know, keep an eye out for that schedule for 2018. And, uh, yeah, and my Instagram feed, I'm constantly kind of updating folks with what I'm doing. And, uh, yeah, I'd love to hear feedback. You know, if you listen to the podcast or – you know, have anything to share, please uh, drop a line. I'd, I'd love to kind of hear what you're thinking. All right, man. We'll keep up the good work. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, man. I really appreciate it. And uh, yeah, just stoked you had the chance to, to, to connect. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, 
No other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie, and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.